0: Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. I'm sure you've been wished that by others, but I add my wish to you as well, but more than that, my prayer. Uh, Aren't we glad that as Christ followers, we're just not wishers? Uh, We are believers, and we have a God who is faithful to answer our prayers. Now, we have a bit of a problem. Uh, About a month ago, I uh, had... uh, a cataract removed from my right eye. Uh, I could opt for a lens that I could read up close, or a lens that I could see in the distance. So I opted for the one that I can see in the distance. Now, tomorrow morning, I'm going to have surgery on this eye, and this eye is all fuzzy. So if I stumble along here, it's because I'm blind, and I don't read Braille, okay? So be patient with me, and if I need correction, just shout it out, okay? Now, as we look at the text this morning, and I'm going to continue on in uh, the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel, I want you to think about the names that are listed there uh, and uh, the couplings of of identification, how people are identified. Of course, the standout in the story would be the wise men. And uh, these are uh, God-seekers. Today, we would call them Christ-seekers. They're in earnest about it. Then I want you to think about uh, Joseph. Uh, He is uh, obviously a very important person in the life of Jesus. And I want you to think about Mary, a new mother uh, who has conceived supernaturally, And uh, there are some issues that she's going to have to deal with. For instance, when Simeon comes uh, uh, into the uh, temple uh, and Jesus is being circumcised on the eighth day, uh, he is moved by the Spirit, this old, old man, and he recognizes that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And he prophesies, and he speaks over Mary and he speaks to her that this child is uh, uh, going to experience a rise and a fall and your your heart is going to be pierced your very soul is going to be pierced so she's carrying that in her heart and of course then there is the infant child this is jesus who will go through a total human experience being fully human and at the same time fully divine uh, and and he's going to journey for 30 years, or 33 years plus, uh, through what we journey through in this life. And then uh, uh, there is a a tyrant by the name of Herod, and the text will have some things to say about him. And uh, then uh, two people from the past, uh, actually three, an unnamed prophet, and then uh, Jeremiah, and Rachel. So with that in mind, let's jump into this text, and what I wanted to answer is the question why the world needs Jesus, and thus why we need Jesus. So uh, let me begin by reading a few verses beginning in the ninth verse. After this interview, the wise men went uh, their way, and the, snor- uh, the star they had had seen in the east, guided them to Bethlehem It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Now, what I want us to see in this is that uh, first takeaway, first point, the first reason that I see in this text why Jesus needed to come to this world is that he is the sole satisfaction of earnest seekers. Everybody is looking for something in this life. Uh, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, that's, that's a sermon basically preached by Solomon, this great king in Israel, who uh, by some would be recognized as one of the wisest, if not the wisest man that ever lived. And if you think about his life as you read through it, read through the, the book of Ecclesiastes, this the sermon that he preached, you find that he was wise, known for his wisdom. He was wealthy. Perhaps no one has had the wealth, personal wealth, that Solomon had. We know also about him that uh, he didn't go without. He could have anything that he wanted. Uh, In addition to his wealth, he had women. He had lots and lots of women. He had 300 wives and 700 concubines. That is uh, 600, uh, no, that's 999 too many women in one's life. (laughs) So he had a harem. And then also uh, there was the wine. And I think about wine, I think about pleasure. And so there was no pleasure that he denied himself. And you know what he said? Empty, empty, all is empty. Life is vain. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you sense the despair of a man who's tried to find life and uh, satisfaction in life from, from what this world offers, and it hasn't worked for him. And so in the very last chapter, in his concluding remarks, he says, this is my advice to you. Fear God. And obey him. That's where life is to be found. Well, uh, because of God's providence and ordination, these men travel hundreds of miles looking for something that has been promised. And the reason they know to come is contained in uh, uh, the story uh, of the Old Testament when Israel went into captivity. And what we discovered is, and discover is that all through history, and the second point is this, that uh, God has in place uh, those that have bear a sacred treasure; they carry with them a sacred treasure of which they are the custodians. Now we know that Mary, in her body, was the custodian of Jesus. Then we know after his birth, uh, Joseph, for a number of years, was a caregiver and a custodian of Jesus Christ. He watched over Jesus. We don't know when uh, uh, Joseph leaves the story. It's assumed that he died uh, 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 sometime during the lifetime of Jesus. He's not mentioned in the narrative. But uh, the Lord speaks to Joseph, and these are the words of the Lord to Joseph, beginning in the 13th verse. He says, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him that night Joseph left for Egypt with a child and Mary's mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord has spoken through the prophet called my through the prophet uh, um, I called my son out of Egypt. So this custodian of Jesus uh, has a a wonderful name. Uh, I've known a lot of Joes in my life and. One of the things we say, oh, he's a good Joe. I want you to think about the Joes in the Bible. Uh, Early on in Israel's history, there was another Joseph, and he was the 11th son of Jacob, if you remember. And uh, he was a favored son. Uh, He was Rachel's son. And uh, his birth was rather spectacular because she was barren. She couldn't bear a child but uh, later on in life, God opened her womb so she could conceive. And so the 11th son born to Jacob was, was Joseph, and he was a very special in Joseph's eyes. The older brothers, as you remember, were jealous of him, and so he was sold into slavery. And so the last several chapters of the book of Genesis are Joseph's story and how uh, he so represents the Spirit of Christ and how through his agency, uh, the Lord was able to preserve the nation. Uh, and he came to a, an incredible position in, in, in the nation. And um, after after his fathers died, the brothers who had sold him into slavery uh, were fearful of their own lives. They just felt like, well, after dad dies, um, Joseph is going to settle the score. And he was in a position in life to do so if he wanted He wanted vengeance, it was there for the taking. They came to Joseph, and they said, you know, uh, Dad said to give these instructions, and I don't know if Dad really did this or they're making it up. But they say to Joseph, uh, you know, uh, Dad said, you know, could you forgive us? And I'm paraphrasing in in that sense. And Joseph says, oh, you don't understand. Uh, God sent me here. I was on a mission for God. God sent me here to spare lives. Why did Jesus come? Did he not come to spare life? Did he not come that we might have life and have it more abundantly? And as Joseph in the Old Testament was a custodian of the good news of salvation, wrought through a, a physical liberation, if you will. Jesus brings salvation eternally through the gift of his life on the cross and his resurrection. And you and I are custodians of that message. Christ lives in you. Wherever you go, you're as pregnant as Mary was. (laughs) Because Christ lives in you. And wherever you go, you bring Jesus to that circumstance. So the question is, uh, Jill obviously is going to have another child here soon, (laughs) and she's a custodian. So I imagine she watches what she eats, what she does, because something special is in her tummy, something special in her womb. And one day... She will give birth to that child, and that child will be loved. Paul said, my little children, I I travail in birth pains over you because I want you to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so not only are we custodians of those who don't yet know Christ, we're custodians of the body of Christ. We're custodians of one another. We care for one another. And I think back over the course of my life, because I'm now a very, very old man, and I think it looks like I'm going to get older. <laughs> I'm going to see better. and That's what I'm hoping anyway. And I think of the messengers, the custodians in my life. I think of my Sunday school teachers. I think of... Uh, we called them sisters. Everybody was sister and brother in the church I grew up in, and so there was Sister Davis. She taught me Scripture as an 8-year-old boy, and I memorized Scripture. There was Sister Walker. There was my mother and my father. There were those wonderful people in the uh, Norwalk Foursquare Church where I grew up. They just nurtured and cared for me. They brought Jesus to me. And now I'm a carrier of Jesus. I bring Jesus to people. That's what I do. I'm a professional Jesus bringer. That's who you are. You are professional Jesus bringers. But it's important how we bring Jesus, isn't it? That that, that we're, in a sense, nourishing him, bringing honor to his name, not shame, but honor to his name. Isn't that what we're called to do? So I thank God for the custodians in my life that brought Jesus to me. But there is a, there's a, a, a tyrant in this story, and so let's look at that a little bit, and we'll pick up the narrative down uh, at the 16th verse. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. So what we know is that as we celebrate Christmas uh, in the year 2022, Uh, there's a lot of tradition in it that probably isn't all that accurate. For instance, most of the scenes that we see, we see the wise men standing around the manger along with the shepherds. Well, that doesn't seem to be the way the story goes. Seems they showed up sometime after the birth of Jesus, and there weren't three. We don't know how many. We know there were three gifts. We don't know there were three Probably was a large entourage, probably a caravan of people of great notoriety. Uh, they get an interview with King Herod, so the city's in an uproar. Uh, Man, who? Why are these guys here? And so they get the story out. And as uh, Pastor Rod read, uh, Herod feigns uh, uh, worship and adoration for the newborn king, but is a tyrant, and Jesus came to triumph over tyrants. And when you read the historical accounts of the Herods, and they ruled for about a hundred years around about the birth of Jesus, probably up until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. These were wicked, 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 wicked men. Uh, We're told that uh, this Herod, uh, shortly after uh, Jesus uh, was taken to Egypt, he died a horrendous death. Apparently some terrible internal uh, disease had uh, crippled his body. We know it was another Herod who uh, put James, the brother of John, to death and then laid his hands on Peter and put him him in prison, wanting to put him to death. So he was a tyrant. We know there was another Herod before whom the apostle Paul shared his testimony, and he had the power to liberate Paul, who was unjustly uh, imprisoned, but he didn't. Their history was not good. And so I think in my lifetime, when I think about political tyrants. I think about Adolf Hitler. I think about Pop Paul. I think about Joseph Stalin, uh, (laughs) Saddam Hussein, (laughs) Gaddafi. And, you know, they didn't come to good ends. They did not come to good ends. But I also recognize that there's a man, and in fact, it's my mother's oldest son. That would be me. And there's a tyrant that lives in me. And when I don't get my way, I act out. And I can lie, I can cheat, I can steal, I can do anything. I can maim, I can harm, maybe not so much physically, but certainly with my mouth and in my head. And there's a tyrant inside of me. There was a tyrant that lived inside of Saul of Tarsus. He had great joy in killing Christians. And then one day, he met Jesus. And something radical happened. And Jesus broke the tyranny that was in his heart. And this man, who had been such an enemy of the cross of Christ, became the great crusader for the cross of Christ. And he says, I came to you preaching the message of the cross. And he became Paul, the writer of 13 books of the New Testament. God loves tyrants. And his, his wrath is poured out simply because tyrants reject him. But when tyrants will turn to him, he redeems them. He saves them. But there's one final reason that I see in this text why Jesus needed to come into this world. It's because he is the consoler of the grief stricken. It's very there's a pathos to how this uh, narrative concludes at this point. It reads this way. Herod, Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had outwitted him. He sent uh, soldiers to call all the boys in and around Bethlehem, who were two years and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled uh, uh, what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted. They are dead. Think about it. Think about Rachel. Think about Jeremiah. Rachel wept because she couldn't have children. Jeremiah wept. He was told not to marry. And he said, oh, that my head was a fountain, that I could weep day and night for the slain daughters of my people. There was something in his heart that identified with what was going to happen to all the lovely ladies in Jerusalem because of the refusal of the nation to repent and turn to God. And I think at Christmas time, into all of our lives, there comes a sense of despair. There comes a sense of grief. Now, maybe we're more aware of it at Christmas time because um, that's supposed to be a happy time. It's Merry Christmas and all of that. And it doesn't seem uh, to. Um, be uh, compatible with the spirit of Christmas sadness. But all around the world today, there's just as much sorrow and sadness as there was yesterday. And on Christmas Day, December the 25th, there'll be just as much sorrow and sadness in the world. And it'll come to you. It'll come to me. Friday night, about 7 o'clock, Anita answered the phone, and it was our son Josh. Josh is back in the hospital again. He's been there several times this last year. We don't know what's going on in him uh, physically. Terrible infections. Uh, Josh will be um, 30, uh, 54 his next birthday. He um, has a very low blood count, internal bleeding, And, of course, Josh's father, that'd be me. He's our adopted son, but I'm his father. I've had colon cancer and liver cancer. I know the jaundice look. I'm not sure what's going on, and I'm not a medic. But I'm going to tell you that son has been so in and out of the hospital so many times this last year that it breaks my heart. I don't want to outlive my son, but I may. And we wept, and we cried together. And, you know, Jesus is so good because all of God's people have rallied around us. You know, the the Facebook, I'm not good on it. It bothers me because it always dings and I'm doing something else and I feel like I'm obligated to answer it because I'm a duty person. But, boy, it's great to be contacted by so many people that know and love you, care about you, say, I'm praying, I'm praying, i This morning, just before I came, Ed Brown is one of my uh, interns years and years ago. He's a pastor out in Palm Springs area. He said, Ron, I'm praying for you. God's going to anoint you as you preach this morning. He's going to bring comfort and consolation to your heart. And so we do grieve over Loss, and we've had folks in our church this year that have really had loss. They've lost their mates, and it hurts. It hurts like crazy. But also, we have found the source of comfort. And there is a grief strickenness, in my mind, that's far greater and even more important in one sense than that which we experience temporarily and physically. And that's the grief I experienced. Just this last week, I was remembering the sins of my youth, which were many. Now, I am a theologian enough to know that God has forgiven those sins. They're buried, they're forgotten by him, but not by Ron. No, no. I found myself weeping before the Lord. Oh, God, I'm so sorry for wasted opportunity. I'm sorry that I didn't be the custodian of the gospel that you had called me to be. Help me, Lord. And then the comfort of the Spirit. Scripture comes. You're forgiven. And I say, here's my sin. And God says, what sin? I forgot all about that. Why, well, you reminding me of it. It's It's gone. It's forgotten. And don't we need that? Don't you have the whisper in your ear, This the accuser of the brethren, Satan, just telling you all the screw-ups in your life and how you messed up? I do. And I, I try to live a good life. I really do. But I stumble a lot of times. But I have a faithful, faithful Savior. And at, when I close, and as I close, I, I want you to think about this. Uh, some of my colleagues, and I'm certainly one of them in this sense, We get agitated over the political system in the good old U.S. of A. And we get kind of ticked. And we all have ideas of how we can straighten the mess out. And we'd like to see moral reform. We'd like to see uh, some sense of, of ethic restored to our nation our people. And when I get on that, I can just go on and on and on. But then something says to my heart, is that your primary task? To produce for political reform, moral reform? No, no, my primary task, your primary task is to bring redemption, not reformation. For if we reform society, And it only makes people live morally better lives. If they don't come to Christ, where's their destiny? Good people will go to hell. And that's the truth of the matter if they reject Jesus Christ. And how are they going to know about Jesus Christ unless I tell them? Unless I, as a custodian of the gospel, bring the message of the gospel, for what the world needs is Jesus. (laughs) Beyond Warwick sung back in the day, <laughs> what the world needs now is love. For there's one thing there's just not plenty of, and I messed that up. But you remember the song, but I grew up on the song, What the world needs is Jesus, just a glimpse of Him. He'll bring joy and gladness. Take away sin and sadness. What the world needs is Jesus. So, taps, you come up here and let's sing together. Let's worship with the Lord a bit. And it's Christmas time. Remember that the wise men brought their gifts to Christ. What is the gift that you will bring to Jesus? What he wants is you, what he wants is me. So, let's bring ourselves as gifts to Christ.